0: Learning to die isn't easy. In Iraq, at the beginning, I was terrified by the idea. Baghdad seemed incredibly dangerous, even though statistically I was pretty safe. We got shot at and mortared, and IEDs laced every highway, but I had good armor, we had a great medic, and we were part of the most powerful military the world had ever seen. The odds were good that I would come home, maybe wounded, but probably alive. Every day I went out on mission, though, I looked down the barrel of the future and saw a dark, empty hole. For the soldier, death is the future. The future his profession assigns him," wrote Simone Vey in a remarkable meditation on war, the Iliad, or the poem of Force. Yet the idea of man's having death for a future is abhorrent to nature. Once the experience of war makes visible the possibility of death that lies locked up in each moment, our thoughts cannot travel from one day to the next without meeting death's face. That was the face I saw in the mirror, and its gaze nearly paralyzed me. I found my way through an 18th century samurai manual, Yamoto Tunemoto's Hagakure, which commanded meditation on inevitable death should be performed daily. Instead of fearing my end, I owned it. Every morning after doing maintenance on my Humvee, I'd imagine getting blown up by an IED, shot by a sniper, burned to death, run over by a tank, torn apart by dogs, captured and beheaded, and succumbing to dysentery. Then, before we rolled out through the gate, I'd tell myself I needn't worry because I was already dead. The only thing that mattered was that I did my best to make sure that everyone came back alive. If by setting one's heart right every morning and evening, one is able to live as though his body were already dead, wrote Sunitomo, he gains freedom in the way. I got through my tour of Iraq one day at a time, meditating each morning on my inevitable end. When I left Iraq and came back stateside, I thought I'd let that future behind. Then I saw it come home in the chaos that was unleashed after Katrina hit New Orleans. And then I saw it again when Sandy battered New York, and New Jersey. Government agencies failed to move quickly enough and volunteer groups like Team Rubicon had to step in to manage disaster relief. Now, when I look into our future, into the Anthropocene, I see water rising up to wash out Lower Manhattan. I see food riots, hurricanes, and climate refugees. I see the 82nd airborne soldiers shooting looters. I see grid failure, wrecked harbors, Fukushima waste, and plagues. I see Baghdad. I see the Rockaways. I see a strange, precarious world, our new home. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes of on SyncBook Radio, and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, November 21st, and today we'll pause in our consumption to learn how to fight, to ponder philosophy and the role of philosopher, and to learn how to die in a new world, one of our own making, and we'll do so with war veteran journalist and author Roy
1: Scranton. Did I say that right? Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Doug.
0: You bet. Scranton is the author, most recently, of War Porn, his debut novel published by Soho Press in 2016. It was my intention to discuss this work today, but then Donald J. Trump happened, and in response, I've been consoling myself with his 2015 work, Learning to Die in the Anthropocene, Reflections on the End of a Civilization, published in 2015 by City Lights. Our world is changing, rising seas, spiking temperatures, and extreme weather imperil global infrastructure, crops, and water supplies. Conflict, famine, plagues, and riots menace from every quarter, from war stricken Baghdad to the melting Arctic. Human caused climate change poses a danger not only to political and economic stability, but to civilization itself and to what it means to be human. Our greatest enemy, it turns out, is ourselves. The warmer, wetter, more chaotic world we now live in, the Anthropocene, demands a radical new vision of human life. In this bracing response to climate change, Roy Scranton combines memoir, reportage, philosophy and Zen wisdom to explore what it means to be a human in a rapidly evolving world, taking readers on a journey through street protests, the latest findings of Earth scientists, a historic UN summit, millennial of geological history, and the present vitality of ancient literature. Expanding on his influential New York Times essay, Scranton responds to the existential problem of global warming by arguing that in order to survive, we must come to terms with our own mortality. Plato argued that to philosophize is to learn how to die. If if that's true, says Scranton, then we have entered humanity's most philosophical age, for this is precisely the problem of the Anthropocene. The trouble is now that we must learn to die, not as individuals, but as a civilization. Scranton's journalism can be found in many national publications, and he teaches creative writing at Notre Dame. More information about him and his work can be found at his website, royscranton.com. It truly is an honor to be sharing this moment with him today. How are you doing, Roy? I'm I'm doing uh, fairly well,
1: I suppose.
0: Okay, well, on election day, November 8th, I shared a really hopeful 42 minutes with Douglas Rushkoff, and we were pondering the type of sustainable human system that can interrupt and replace global capitalism, kind of undoing our connection to infinite growth. But at that same time, a little less than half the country was also fed up with our curtain system and disrupted it with uh, a wrecking ball known as Trump. And I've had difficulties coming to terms with this. But I found solace in your 2015 book, *Learning to Die in the Anthropocene*. So, <laughs> how can we find hope in death? And what is
1: the Anthropocene? Uh, well, I'm glad the book has been has been helpful for you. I've had to sort of return to it myself in the past uh, two weeks after the after the election results, which were something that was you know the election. The rise of trump the the turn to nationalism and violence uh, in response, if not directly to global climate change and the situation of the anthropocene then to at least its secondary effects uh, and the the related effects of uh, the crisis of capitalism uh, uh, increasing scarcity increasing uh, decreasing resources um, increasing climate instability, political instability, um, refugees and so on. Uh, that was all very much the, the, the sort of the rise of Trump and the turns national war were all very much in my mind in writing the book and, and in, you know, when I was, uh, when it came out and I was, I was touring it. And so there's a way in which I felt, <laughs> I felt, uh, on, you know, the the day on, the Wednesday after the election mm-hmm. uh, that I should have been okay with things because actually the situation hadn't really changed. Uh, we were still facing the same, uh, we were on the same path toward climate um, catastrophe and the things that I had had been assuming or I guess predicting had come, would come true had, and yet at the same time, there was no, there was no softening the emotional shock and the, the real sense of of loss and uh, fear that and and anger that I was were passing those feelings that were passing through me, uh, and the way I'm sort of the way I'm coming to understand that is that you know I wrote the book Learning to Die in the Anthropocene as a, as a way of coming to terms myself with the, the threat that climate change posed to the way of life we live and, uh, and the sort of existential threat that we are dealing with and the inevitability of, of enormous catastrophic change in our lifetimes. And I thought, great, okay, I did that, and, and now, now I'm, I'm okay with it. But that's, that's not the way it works. You don't just you know find a position on on change and death and mortality and loss and then and then you've got that what what we actually have to do is just keep coming back to it and keep processing the grief and keep working through our own impermanence and our own transience and our own um, collective life in the face of of catastrophe and death we just it's not something that that we can never like find one, a stable rock to stand on. And then, and then we'll be all set. It's, this is the process of life is these, these waves, right? These, these uh, surges of fear and desire and grief and hope. And what I think we need to do or what I find I need to do and what I wrote about in the book, learning to die in the Anthropocene is keep coming back to the, interruption of these of these surges to the suspension of these moments of reaction and to keep coming back to a kind of meditative response on our own impermanence right a meditative response on our own death the idea of learning to die of really really finding a kind of peace in the fact that all this is going away so that's i've i've had to come back to my my own my book myself um because it's it's been a real shock these last two weeks
0: well maybe we should talk a little bit about that in the book you make a distinction between like the role of philosophy which is an interruptive role which is contemplative and meditative and but not dis- disruptive could you talk a little bit about that
1: Right, so a lot of people talk about the necessity of of disruption, and a lot of these people are capitalists or or capitalist uh, ideologues, or they work in Silicon Valley or whatever. Um, but it's also connected, maybe, to the idea of uh, philosophy as critique—the uh, idea that you know there's a status quo, and it tends to become moribund and um, choke on its on its own um, stodginess and that that we need to break things up we need to disrupt things in order to open up new creative possibilities that's not what i'm talking about at all and in fact i'm i'm i don't think that's a realistic um i think that's true on one level but i don't think it's a very comprehensive truth i don't think that's the way human society and i don't think that's the way nature actually functions at larger levels and i don't think it's a way that to help us become wiser or um, to help us feel more free or more capable of acting instead, what I argue for is interruption, which is which isn't about breaking up systems it 's about suspending ongoing processes it 's about slowing response it's about not reacting it 's about not letting that desire to react take over whatever you might have been doing right it's it's about not letting yourself become distracted, not letting yourself be taken over by these, these memes and waves of, uh, of emotion and, uh, fantasy that we're plugged into just by dint of the fact that we're social beings. Like there's no way we can avoid being social beings, but we can, we can slow down that process and create moments of peace and moments of space where new possibilities can emerge hmm.
0: the election itself feels I, I I recognize a lot of people are kind of giddy because they're anticipating the kind of disruptive uh, moment occurring at, like breaking apart a system that they're unhappy with yeah. but I think it also has a lot of people uh, in a lot of fear because there's something comforting about stability yeah and as you break the thing that everyone's standing on you just have no idea what will support us in in the in the rubble right I'm, I'm, I'm just curious uh, how, how you are personally feeling about Trump moving through these you know the just behaving in such a different manner than we've seen presidents in the past
1: It's um, it's alarming and frightening uh, and infuriating to to have this unstable, bigoted autocrat in a in a position of power um, that it's hard to even imagine how much how much power the president of the United States has and how much power we've the Congress and the American people have have given over to the president in the last 15 years especially. I mean, since World War II, but in the last 15 years, there's been an acceleration in, in the transference of power to the executive branch. Um, he's He'll have an, an incredible uh, surveillance machine at his disposal. He'll have drone technology. He'll have a free hand with our special forces hunter-killer squads. Uh, he'll have an incredible reach with executive decrees. I mean it's and then and then <laughs> he'll have a, a Republican Congress to to back him up. It's really it's really terrifying. But strangely it's an, it's not the most terrifying thing happening right now to me um because what I've I've been watching for the last um two or 3 days now the Arctic um uh, the polar ice cap, it's been, it's been shrinking. The, the Arctic ice at the North Pole has been melting for the last three days and decreasing in size, which is, it's just, that's just not supposed to happen in the middle of November um, or the, the almost the end of November. It's completely anomalous. And uh, I don't think it's even actually ever been seen in, in since they've been recording the, the Arctic sea ice extent And it's happening because of complex uh, climate dynamics that have brought warmer water into the Arctic and um, the destabilization of the jet stream that's sending, you know, that's making it more wobbly. And and the polar vortex is actually shifting off the off the pole quite often. And um, there's this incredible acceleration in warming. It's been. more than twenty degrees Fahrenheit warmer in the Arctic than it's supposed to be this time of year up to up to thirty or forty degrees warmer than it's supposed to be and this is this is to me this is evidence strongly strongly suggesting that we've we've really crossed over we've really passed over the tipping point into uncontrollable catastrophic greenhouse warming, which means we're going to probably we're going to see Uh, An increase in methane leaks. Uh, I mean, we've already seen methane leaking in um, the Arctic Sea and in Siberia and in Alaska. We're going to see more of that, and that's going to increase warming. It's just all the all the signals now seem to me to be to be suggesting that the feedback is only going to increase, and we're really it's going to be a wild ride for the next couple of decades, and there's no there's really no happy ending.
0: So, one of the um responses to this election was the questioning of uh the veracity of news in general, yeah, and then with this, there's kind of this notion of conspiracy lingering in every institution, yeah, um both real and imagined, so uh, do you have any personal uh reportage? In regards to global warming, or is this you know how can we trust what we're reading in any news source at this point?
1: Um, I mean, I've reported on um, Arctic.
0: Like uh, you've I, gone I, and
1: seen it, and it's I've, yeah, yeah. It's, um, is that what it takes about, these days? <laughs> I wrote about it for the for the Nation, um, uh, and uh, I've reported on uh, Houston's response to climate change. Um, and I didn't do other work uh but you know I I trust so it seems like you're asking me uh you're suggesting that because there's a concern about um falseness uh or uh low standards for truth claims and factual claims in the media and because these false stories have been so powerful you're asking me um i guess I'm not sure whether you're asking me to to sort of verify the claims I'm making now, or whether um, you're su- you're suggesting that personal experience in this environment personal personal experience should trump uh, should should overwhelm facts factual claims. And have I actually been there and seen it? Um, now, in the if it's the second case, I would I would caution you against that because that's actually part of the logic that's led us to this point. Um Yes, I've been to the Arctic, but you don't need to go to the Arctic to look at the evidence that's available uh, from scientists, and uh, that would take me back to the the first thing about the truth claims. So you can the National Snow and Ice Data Center has a very accessible sea ice graph there are you know there are several uh national and global scientific and meteorological agencies of um you know of with with wonderful credentials with very very they're very established places staffed by actual scientists um who are monitoring uh what's happening in the arctic and and uh you know i've talked to some of them and and you can follow some on twitter and there's the evidence is available um and and easily accessible if you if you go to reputable sources
0: I guess my point was that we're we're in a world now especially where there is kind of a contempt for the kind of science that you're talking about for hard evidence yes yes and especially on the internet where it's easy to just say it's all a conspiracy I mean, it's 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 refreshing to have to be talking to someone who not only has done the hard research but actually went and saw firsthand. The, the, you know, right. I mean, is I'm just I I don't know. Like we went through this whole moment of flat Earth. I don't know if you're aware of that, but there was this moment where people were doubting the veracity of the Earth being round and that. Th- there is this controlling body of—I mean, it's just ridiculous. But still, I, I do you Were you aware of that?
1: Uh, are you, do you mean a recent? Yeah, a, rec- a recent, a yeah. recent flat Earth phenomenon. Well, I don't even—you know—I mean, we don't even um, need to go that far. Uh, m- you know, much of the discussion around antibiotics, and I mean, we can point to, and, and then. Issues around the election, the whole birther issue. I mean, we we don't need to reach very far to find examples of anti-intellectualism and people believing what they want to believe, regardless of facts, or or you know, people choosing to choosing which fa- which facts they want to believe without a good sense of how to how to measure those or how to how to weigh those. I mean. You know the fact of the matter is <sighs> education has been sort of uh under uh, been undermined and subverted and um I don't, just it really degraded in America over the past uh twenty years so, you know especially with with these things like standardized tests and, and forcing students to to just know the answers for the tests rather than teaching them critical thinking and, and scientific literacy. And, 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 and then that's on top of, you know, already a pretty spotty record when it, when it comes to having a strong science education or strong, you know, critical thinking skills taught to to students. So we have a population uh, who ha- are, you know, American American people are not super well educated, and then we're we're overwhelmed and inundated with information from an incredible variety of sources. And even even if you know, even if you are fairly well educated, uh, you're still going through your day to day life, right? Um, inundated with overwhelmed with information uh, from with authority figures telling you things that may or may not be true i you know this isn't just a problem with um, you know people on the right or or republicans or rural working class people um, the this this spurious the uh, spurious allegations around or at least the the dubious allegations around um, russian uh, involvement in, in the American election, um, you know, and the way that people would just repeat those people. I know um, liberal educated people, you know, repeating things you hear that you want to be true is something that happens on both sides of the, of the political spectrum. And it happens among educated and, and less educated alike. There's, there is, however, you know, one, positive effect of, of education in critical thinking and, and scientific literacy is uh, an emphasis on and a premium on evidence, you know, empirical evidence uh, that can be weighed in a kind of, in a reasoned and an objective way, you know, which is always an ideal and never a pure, a pure re- truth, but it's always to have that aspiration, I think, is something that um, I think we lack in American culture across the board right now. We don't, I don't think we, most Americans actually care about whether or not what they believe is true. I think they're far more interested in getting, getting by day to day and feeling good about themselves and their world. And so that's a problem when you have something like you know global climate change or when you have something like uh you know uh, an insurgent populist political movement that uh you know seems to stymie every expectation of the elites where we we're not very good especially I mean especially the liberal elite we're not very good at at you know confronting hard, disagreeable realities.
0: In your book, you talk about colony collapse, and you kind of are playing with this metaphor mm-hmm. of bees, and you speak about vibration and dancing. Mm. And these are interesting ways of... I mean, so you're, you, you're explaining how bees convey information, but at the same time, there's something really human about that, in terms of mm-hmm. it's an ensouled behavior I guess as opposed to our computer networks that are just abstract and you know not very human i i mean i'm i'm look i'm grasping for hope at this at you know at this time, and it's hard to know. Like you're saying, the, the left latches on to these same type of stories that they really want to be true. For me, it was, you know, maybe maybe he's just president-elect Donald J. Trump right now. And that if enough of the electors can wake up to the the vision of, you know, a of, of future nationalistic, almost you know, potentially fascist America... That they'll they'll come to their senses and we'll just go back to status quo, which is just as scary, but at least it's the scariness
1: that we know. My suspicion is that that that's not very likely, uh, and I, and I and I, but I've heard similar things, and I've heard a similar desire from a lot of a lot of people, uh, a sort of uh, a desire to disbelieve a desire to find some other story that either makes the reality that we're confronting, um, makes it go away or makes it gives it a happy ending or, or gives it a positive spin. And I think, you know, it's a perfectly human response, but I also think it's, it's delusional. Um, Donald Trump is a symptom of uh, deeper disturbances in American culture and economy and society. And wishing him away uh, isn't going to solve any of those problems. And it's also not going to deal with the fact that we have, you know, an unstable sexist bigot with autocratic tendencies and Going into the White House, who's likely to bring in, who appears to be bringing in a cabinet of cretins, thugs, and losers, the the likes of which we we've never seen, assembled in in one sort of um, cabal. That's that's reality, and and it's it's the reality that uh, Donald Trump is going to appoint to, uh, or at least uh, says he's going to appoint to the EPA a climate change denier. It's a reality that that the that as we you know as we enter what should be the most critical moment for working together as a world to slow down uh catastrophic climate change we have an administration coming into uh the governance of the most important uh, economy in the world with the largest military that's actually just going to put its thumb on the fast forward button that's the world we live in and I don't I think it's I think the first thing we need to do before we try to figure out what to do or how to react or how to respond the first and most important thing we need to do is is come to terms with and and, is, is accept that reality and accept that this is what this is the world we live in this is sort of this goes back to the idea of learning to die and and Uh, learning to die in the Anthropocene and accepting that this civilization is already dead. You know, there's no, there's no, there's no fixing what's wrong with carbon-fueled global capitalism, right? We can't just make America great again, right? We can't, we can't, (laughs) there's no, there's no magic bullet, right? We have to accept that, that, that stuff is broken that this way of life is broken and Donald Trump is a symptom of that he's not a cause he's a symptom and and until we do that we're going to be locked in the same cycles of reaction and and extremism and violence that have got us here that have gotten us to this moment so i don't think hope is useful i don't think hope is Realistic. I don't think hope is helpful. I think hope is only going to hurt us at this point.
0: Okay. Well, another word that comes up in your work is violence, Mm -hmm. and I found you actually from your Fourth of July Star Wars piece, and you know, with within that is the subconscious belief that righteous violence will somehow redeem us. But then, in in uh, the learning to die book, you know, you talk about the myth of violence never solved anything right? where that's actually not true, and so I'm just curious about your idea of I mean, so the thing that is just so amazing to me at the same time all this is happening we actually have like the front line of the whole crisis in Standing Rock, where here is a sovereign People saying, "We can't do this anymore," and then global capitalism just kind of running them over with the machine.
1: So, um, violence, like you know, many other human activities, is is complicated, uh, and it's complicated, not least because it's one of the ways that that we make meaning. Uh, Some people argue that violence is inherently meaningless or that it's, you know, violence destroys meaning or violence destroys language. These are sort of academic arguments that I've come across again and again, but that's not true at all. In fact, uh, violence is one of the ways that humans construct meaning. And it's false to say that violence never solved anything, right? This is a, this is similar to the idea that violence is meaningless. You know, violence has has affected change, right? Um, violence has been meaningful for um, for certain groups and for certain moments. Um, the problem is, though, that the way that violence, one of the ways that violence works is that it, is that it forces, uh, it forces us, it forces humans, it forces the people involved into a, um, into a binary mentality. It forces them into an us and them mentality and it pushes the people on the other side of that of that division, the them right mm-hmm. into uh, a, a, a equal and opposite reaction, right? If you say, you know, if you feel if the if the police are killing your people and you kill the police, the police are gonna double down, right? the the violence Violence only breeds more violence. It's still meaningful. It can still be a way to solve a certain problem. um, But the, but it only solves the problem if you kill enough people. World War II only ended because we, the United States and Great Britain and France and Russia killed enough Germans and Japanese to bring that war to an end. Right. The, the, Civil war only ended because the North killed enough Southern soldiers. This is this is how violence solves problems by turning people who you disagree with into bodies. Now, I've heard people recently turn to Malcolm X and turn to um, an advocacy of uh, violence on the left against the American state against police, against Donald Trump even. And from a certain logic that might make sense, there's no way we're gonna stop climate change, for example, or stop a racist militarized police state without taking the power from the people who have it. And there's no way to take that power it seems without, without violence, because they're not going to give it up. And they also control the legal machinery. They also control or are the police. The problem is that when you turn to violence, you, you turn to the question of the material question of who's got the most bodies, who's got the most guns, and who's going to be able to make the most bodies. Who's going to be able to kill the most people and that's a logic I can't even not. Not only can I not support, I can't even participate. I don't even want to think about it because because I saw that logic happen in Baghdad under the American occupation in the in the sectarian civil war between Sunnis and Shia. You know, which didn't end. It it ended not because of the American surge, but it ended because uh, the Sunnis and the Shia basically segregated their cities, and the city was. That bagged neighborhoods were ethnically cleansed. That's not a solution to the problems of climate change. It's not a solution to the to the problems of of political disagreement. It's certainly not a solution that I can I can support or um, get behind. And it's and it's something I think that we should be very careful about advocating, especially those of us who, um, you know, uh, those of us comfortable liberals in our Um, in our nice cities with our nice jobs, you know, who aren't, you know, aren't going to be the ones dying,
0: Yeah.
1: uh, the ones with their bodies on the line. And so this is where I come back again to the, to the necessity of instead of reacting, instead of fighting, instead of finding a way to go to, to respond with, with equal and opposite violence, the violence of a state or a political system or the violence of climate change, instead of those, w- w- what seems to offer more freedom and possibility to me is the idea of interrupting that very cycle of suspending that, that cycle of, of fear and aggression, suspending that reaction right? Suspending it within ourselves and finding ways to suspend it within society. There's, there's this, there's a pull once, you know, there's a pull to violence. There's a pull to aggression. There's a compulsion to strife that only grows the more you feed it and i i fear for our nation and i fear for the world if we if we as as more and more people seem to be deciding to make that choice rather than to develop patience and to interrupt that process with compassion and and understanding
0: so then i mean we're just almost out of time i just wonder how you i mean <laughs> how do we exist in this moment as far as so i i liked how you you mentioned that it's easy for uh, comfortable liberals in the cities to advocate various actions um <laughs> there's you know you mentioned you don't want to fight a symptom i just don't even know do we, do we have to, yeah, I don't even know. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't. Um, there's the problems we face, uh, the problems of catastrophic climate change, the problems of um, increasing income, increasing wealth inequality and increasing wealth concentration, uh, the problems of racialized violence, the problems of um, global militarism, ethno-nationalism, the problems of resource scarcity, uh, uh, drought, uh, civil war, and on and on and on. I think we're foolish to... to believe that we can just gin up solutions to these problems, you know, at our desks or at our computers or on Facebook or on Twitter. And um, I think these problems are are enormous and they're bigger than us and they're overwhelming. And the first thing we need to do before rushing to feel like we have an answer or rushing to know what we can do right now. I think the first thing we need to do is, is, is stop, stop doing anything and spend some time meditating on the enormity of these problems. Spend some time meditating on, on our own death, spend some time meditating on the fact that we're here for 80 years you know, if, if we're lucky, maybe maybe 90, and then we're, we die and we're gone. And that's it. And we should also spend some time on the fact that this civilization that feeds on carbon and is poisoning the planet and is superheating the planet, um, driven by coal and oil, is going away. We can see it going away right now and it's the question isn't whether we can how we can stop that process the question isn't how we can keep living these insanely wealthy lives where we fly all over the world and um eat food from halfway across the planet the question is how do we how do we live with ourselves today in our own impermanence and transience and how do we work together to ease the transition from this world now to the world of the anthropocene the world of uh, a much warmer earth uh, and a much more chaotic dangerous unpredictable planet how do we ease a transition from carbon fueled capitalism to whatever comes next, you know, because right now, (laughs) um, you know, this, this atavis atavistic, you know, uh, symptom, uh, is, is, is a drive to to hang on to things, a drive to make America great again. This is not going to make the transition smoothly. It's going to make the transition violently and chaotically and, um, and horrifically, uh, but in our day-to-day lives and it, with whatever power we have, whatever influence we have, I think we need to be figuring out how we can work to 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 soften the edges of this transition and work to put work to make spaces for compassion and peace in this in what's going to be a profoundly terrifying and and um, dangerous few decades. Well, that was 42
0: minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you
1: for having me on, Doug. You bet.
0: You've been listening to Roy Scranton on 42 Minutes, a production of Syncbook Radio and thesyncbook.com. For more information about his books and his work, check out his website, royscranton.com. For more information about the Syncbook, our guests, to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a Syncbook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind the scenes scripts, bonus audio, and video, as well as seasonal online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbookcom slash membership. Thanks so much and our choice is a clear one we can continue acting if tomorrow will be just like yesterday, growing less and less prepared for each new disaster as it comes and more and more desperately invested in a life we can't sustain or we can learn to see each day as a death of what came before, freeing ourselves to deal with whatever problems the present offers without attachment of fear.
2: Cause we the people are still here in the rear. Yo, we don't need it. You ain't the killing off good young nigga move. When we get hungry, we eat the same fucking food. The ramen noodle. The simple voodoo is so maniacal, reliable but pull a choo-choo. The irony is that this bad bitch in my lap. She don't tell me she make money, she don't study that. She gon' give it to me, ain't gon' tell me none of that. She gon' take the brain away the place she spit on that. But and signs with it. Don't try to rhyme with VH1 has a show that you can waste your time with Guilty pleasures take the edge of reality and for a salary I probably do that just sporadically The OG Gucci boots are smitten with iguanas The IRS piranhas see a nigga getting common Niggas in the hood living in a fishbowl Gentrify here now it's not a shithole Trend set up, I know my shit's cold Hands set up it because I ain't so bold with yeah. it. All you black folks, you must go Boy, we hate your ways all so, oh, you bad folks,
3: you must go uh. the, fog the fog and the smog of the media, the that logs False narratives of gods, gods that came up against the odds We're not just nigga rappers with the bars It's with that we conflict with the stars You bastards overlooking street art Better yet street smart But you keep us off the charts uh. The motherfuckin' numbers in your statistician oh, fuck, fuck y'all you know about true competition? Oh, Just like the A.O. picture on there talking about he hittin' yeah. The only one who's hittin' are the ones that's currently spittin' We got the Missy Smithin' rubbin' on a little kitten Dreamin' up a world that's equal for women with no division huh. Boy, I tell you that's vision Like Tony Romo when he hit and in. The try be the best in eight division Shaheed Mohammed cut it with precision Who can come back years later still hit the shot? Still I'm trying to move you off the fucking block Babylon blood clot Cube on your head top mm. All you black folks you must go All you Mexicans
2: you must go It is worry hate So all you bad folks you must go.